I had this really weird, um, well, not weird, just a, a moment uh, where a memory from my childhood sprang to mind this morning. And it was uh, this instance that I had. I was wrestling with my faith uh, in, in middle school. And um, I remember being a part of this uh, little Bible study that they did at, at the school. And I, I was the sort of the rebel kid in the mix. But there was one kid who I remember thinking, like, this is the Christian dude. Like, this is the one that everyone looked at. He was the one. And I remember having a conversation with him. And it circled around homework. And I was, I was pressing him on, on, well, Christians would always do their homework. And he said, what does Christianity have to do with homework? And all the high school students said... Amen. <laughs> uh, and that's a very interesting, I know that sounds like not important, uh, but it is because it illustrates something very important. And that is for him, there was a portion of his life that God didn't really touch. And for me, uh, and, and the way I was trying to wrestle and think through what being a Christian meant for me, it meant everything is now somehow messed with by God. When we use the word Christian, identifying ourselves or identifying somebody else, we frequently mean by that a person who believes certain things about God. And while in some ways that's true, that really is counterproductive in many ways. Because what we mean when we say Christian is really a way of life. You might remember with me that the first thing that they called us followers of Jesus was followers of the way. This is the early, that was the first thing they called it, the, the people of the way, referring to the way of Jesus. And what was the first thing Jesus did when he talked to people? When he, when he met with the disciples, he said, come and follow me. He sees Matthew, the tax collector, and he says, leave that behind and follow me. This is supposed to be about a way of life. And I think we sometimes fail in that because we, we, we bring people in and we, we teach them the things they should think about God. We baptize them and we say, okay, that's it. You, you, you've checked off the list. But that's not it. That's not it at all. It has to be about how we practice faith. Faith is something that is done. It's something that people should experience when they encounter us. It should be something that we, we live in our lives. And I, I wonder if maybe some ways that we've really failed to do that as a church when you get hired onto a new job, they put you in front of the piece of machinery or they put you in front of the computer or they put you in front of something and they say, this is how you operate this. I don't know that anyone ever really did that with me. And so I, I was asking this question, what does it look like to be a Christian? And if you hang with me, for the next seven weeks, that is exactly what we are going to explore. I am going to try to be as eminently practical as I can. What does a Christian do? What does a Christian do? How does a Christian live? And I, I think of it, it my, my word image for that is like primary colors. I mean, remember the color wheel. What are the primary colors? Who knows? Red, yellow, and blue. And then we have secondary colors, right? And then we have tertiary colors that go off of that. All of those come from the mix of that center color. And so what, what, I'm, what I'm describing then is, is what is in the center. What are the things that we see from beginning to end of Genesis to Revelation happening over and over and over again? The people of God, the commands of God, the practice of the people of God. What is, what is the core of what it means to be a Christian? And so I spent the past Four months in my doctoral program exploring that. 
reading Greek and Hebrew texts of Scripture, trying to, trying to catalog all of the instances of Christian or, or biblical practices. And so you're going to have to help me because this is a big deal. I'm unveiling to you the most common thing practiced in all of Scripture over and over and over again, the most common thing. So if you said, what does a Christian look like? The first thing that should be on that list is this thing, and I'm going to reveal it to you now. You don't look very excited. <laughs> and that's okay, but you've got to pretend, because I just wasted four years or four months of my life on that, right? That question. So give me a drum roll. Oh, yeah. You can do better. Louder. This is big. This is big. It's bigger than that. Here we go. It's prayer. The least, the least, might have been the, the, the lamest uh, reveal that you've ever experienced. What I'm hoping uh, to convince you of this morning, though, is that the weight of scriptural practice when it comes to prayer is just, it's immense. This is a grid. Uh, another not surprising reveal. Um, these are the Hebrew words that we translate pray. They're verbs, they're nouns. This is a particular kind of verb. These are Greek words here. These are all the Greek words that we translate pray. Verbs, nouns, particular, particular kinds of verbs and nouns. And it comes up, if you, do, if you catalog all of these, 351 instances of the use of the word prayer in Scripture. If you go beyond that and you, you actually kind of complicate the question, you'll notice that frequently, for, for instance, in, in, the, in the book of Judges, when things are going really bad, the people don't pray, they cry out. And I imagine this, they yell, right? That's a fancy way of saying they yell at God. Have you ever been so broken, so upset, things have gone so poorly, you just yell. Yell at God. And if you include yelling at God, <laughs> the number goes up. If you include other things like uh, uh, um, uh, giving thanks to God or rejoicing or praise. For instance, uh, there's a verse. I really like this verse from 1 Timothy. Or first of all, then I urge petitions. That's a particular kind of prayer. Prayers, the generic word. Intercessions, another particular kind of prayer. And then thanksgivings. And we don't necessarily think of thanksgivings as a type of prayer, but the scripture uses it as though it's a type of prayer when you're giving thanks to God. So if you include all of those different kinds, the number goes up even more. If you include in that uh, blessings, so there's a verse where, where Paul says, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, which is just kind of lovely as a phrase, isn't it? God, the Father of mercy and the God of all comfort. If you include that, if you include all of those instances, you have throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation over 600 instances of the people of God praying. That's a lot. I mean, that, that, that's a lot of prayer. And you're ready for it, right? You're ready for the guilt trip, right? You ready? If it happens so much in Scripture... Why is it not baked into our lives? Why is it not so common in us? So if you say, I'm going to read through the Bible in the year. Anybody make that New Year's resolution? Read through the Bible in the year? Oh, that was, okay. <laughs> uh, 
if you decide <laughs> to make that, you would see over and over again people praying, crying out to God, blessing God, thanking God, praising God, all these things directed towards God. You say, wow, what's the thing that marks scripture? It's prayer to God. What should mark our lives? When you look at Jordan's life, let's put the, the well, literally, we got put the spotlight on me. If you said, what does Jordan's day look like? Is prayer the first thing that comes to mind? And I have to be honest, it probably isn't. And that's a problem. It's a problem not just because it's something I should feel guilty about because it's a Christian duty that I'm not doing, but it's a problem because it means that I am missing out on something that is significant, something that matters, something that connects us to God in such a way that that Scripture brings it up over and 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 over again. So turn in your Bibles. Let's look at a passage. I want to look at uh, James chapter 4. This is on page 1012 if you just want to use the same Bible that I am using. And what I want to see in this text, of, or what I see in this text of Scripture is some really important foundational statements about how prayer ought to look. And it's interesting because I, normally this is not a, a place where people talk about prayer um, because it doesn't use the word prayer, but we've already talked about that, right? The first line in, in, in verse 2, is actually kind of the last sentence of verse 2 of chapter 4 of James, says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. And I read that cold, but like, take that in for a second. If your spouse, girlfriend, boyfriend, fiance, whatever your situation is, says to you, you cheated on me. That's a big deal, right? That's what James is saying here. You cheat on God. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself or herself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, there's a lot of language about prayer in there. A lot of language about how we interact and how we experience, how we experience God. And uh, I, I, just want, I have three points I want to I make, and then um, this will kind of help you in your prayer life this week. And the first point is this. Notice that first line. You do not have, because Why? You don't ask. And what does that presuppose? That God wants you to ask. It presupposes that God actually wants to hear from you. Now, I don't know what you think about God, and I don't think 
I, I don't know what you think about yourself and how that relationship is, but when James wants to talk about God's experience as it relates to you, he uses the word jealousy. As we sing a song, and one of the lines in the song is, he is jealous for me. How many of you ever felt jealousy? Yeah, that's right. Come on, hands up. How many of you felt jealousy? Maybe you got to go back, go back to high school and that boy or girl who's on somebody else's arm if you have to. But we know jealousy, right? Maybe somebody got the promotion you want, got the job you want, got the money you want, got the house you want, got the life that you want. I don't know what it is, but what is jealousy? But it is want, and it's in the guts, right? It's in the guts. I want that thing. In fact, jealousy can get to such an extent that it is inexpressible in words. And when James says, what does God feel about you? Sitting in the pew here in Portage, Michigan, this morning, God feels jealousy. He is jealous for you. He wants to hear from you. I like the line there, but he gives us more grace because I could use a little more grace. I like that line there, draw near to God and he draws near to you. That all it takes is that, 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 that first step, that first prayer, that first getting on the knee, that first, Lord, please. I, like, the, the barriers we put, as Paul said earlier, the barriers that are between you and God are all on our side. God's opened the door through Jesus, through the blood of his own son. He opened the veil of the temple in heaven and says, come see me. That's, that's something. And it makes us wonder, right, why is it that we so rarely access that privileged position we find ourselves in? Is it laziness? Is it busyness? Is it uh, distraction? Uh, the old people, like the dead old guys, like 100 years back, um, the people I like to read, <laughs> uh, they like the word worldliness. I think it's worldliness that holds us back. And this is an important point because a lot of what James says here is, is warnings, right? Warnings. Be careful about this or that. Because prayer... Prayer is more complicated than just you saying whatever you think to God or whatever you feel to God because not all prayers, according to James, count. Notice that verse. You do not have because you do not ask, but when you do ask, you ask wrongly. I was just uh, telling some people who were talking about our lives and how old we are and things like that. I've been in ministry now for 16 years, and so I've seen and heard a lot of people say to me, God doesn't answer my prayers. And my first, um, my first thought in that is, are you praying the right prayer? Because maybe you're praying things that God does not answer. It says here that when you pray, you don't receive because when you ask, you're asking about your own passions. You're asking for your own desires. And, and so this is kind of a, a dual, I think, criticism that we see here in James. And the first is the selfishness of our prayers, how often do your prayers begin with, God, I need. God, help me. Notice when Jesus, uh, Jesus teaches us how to pray. You guys remember that, right? 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Right? It starts with God. Our Father who is in heaven, who is enthroned above, who is in greatness and glory and holy are you. He is other, he is separate, he is beautiful, he is pure, he is perfect. We don't have enough adjectives to actually get at in in any way who God really is. And Jesus says you should start there. And then moving on from there, your kingdom come and your will be done. We talk about the mission of God in the world. The mission of God to bring his own rule and reign so that the world can be flooded with justice and love and goodness and mercy. Like immediately, Jesus says, when you pray, stop thinking about yourself and start thinking about God. Direct everything towards him, his glory, his power, his mercy, his love. Think about his mission and his will in the world because if our prayers are all built around what you get from God, you've turned God into some kind of divine genie. Some kind of slot machine in the sky and if you pull the lever right, you hit jackpot. And that's not who God is. That's not who any of us is, right? If that was the relationship you you had with a person, we call them an emotional leech, Right? And so we're to strip away our selfishness. But we're also to strip away our worldliness. You notice how Jesus goes after that. He says, uh, then after we've re- reflected upon God, his, his holiness, his, his, his will, we then talk about our own needs, uh, the need for food, because you all need food, right? Some of you are feeling that need jealously right now. <laughs> And we need forgiveness, and we need to give forgiveness and receive it, and, and we need protection. And he says, talk about that. But those are not worldly desires. Let me define worldliness for you, or like my tentative definition. Uh, let's think of worldliness as in, when you pray, will that prayer matter in 10 years? When you pray, will that be the same prayer that you pray on your deathbed? Because there are things that we pray for that don't matter. The things that we worry about that have no shelf life. And the problem with worldliness is it infects us. And it, and it moves us more and more towards selfishness and bitterness. And it moves us further away from God. And so there's this warning here that says, don't you understand that if you're a friend with the world, you're an enemy of God. And this is important because this is a letter to Christians. It's a letter to people who think that they're great Christians. They're wonderful. They're the greatest Christians in the world. They think they're awesome. And James says, no. You're actually, your prayer life points out that you're actually an enemy of God. And so we have to ask ourselves that important question. Are our prayers the kind of prayers that God answers? Well, what's the answer to those things? Or how do, we, how do we fix that? How do we work on that? I think it's drawing near humbly. You'll notice how often humility shows up, not just here, but, but in Scripture as, as a whole. It happens all over the place. Jesus says at one point, he says, there are people who think that they will get their prayers answered because, because of their many words. How many words they can stack up. Maybe, maybe you think, if I... If I, if I Phrase it just right, Jesus will care. You ever thought that? I have. Do you think it's your words that matter when it comes to Jesus? Who knows your every thought and hair? 
every hair of your head, every thought that comes into your mind? Or is it our being turned toward God? Isn't that what prayer is about? And notice that line there again. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What is prayer about? Prayer is primarily about drawing near to God and experiencing God's presence and power and perfection and drawing us closer to who he is. That's what prayer is about. And if your prayer life is me needing something from God, God, I need, God, I want, God, please help, are you really engaged in prayer in such a way that it's reflective of a relationship with God? Because wouldn't that be a toxic relationship? in every other place of your life. And so scripture is calling us to see that, that what we need to do is to draw near to God. And it's not, it's not reciting the same prayers over and over and over and over and over again. And if you do that enough times, God will give you what you want. There are whole church traditions that are built on that. Or even seeking God's favor. Like if I pray more this week, God will give me what I need or what I want. Or maybe that thing that I've been desiring and jealous over and wanting. Uh, or, or help me with this problem that's really big or bad or scary. It, it, if, it's that, if it's those two things, then, then we're really not engaged in a relationship. We're, we're engaged um, in treating God like he's a servant of some kind. So we draw near in humility. Because God loves the contrite heart. Humble yourself before God, he says, and God will exalt you. Like, God doesn't want us to be miserable and sad and broken. He wants to lift us up. But we who want to be lifted up must be lifted up by God and on God's terms. And so... When it comes to discussing or thinking about this thing that happens over and over and over and over again in Scripture, we have to ask, how do we do it in such a way that God honors it? And by honoring it, answers it. Because we want to hear from God. We want to experience his presence and his power. But we have to do it in such a way that God will respond to it. And I think of it, I mean, maybe, maybe a, a, a good word picture is something like a GPS. How many of you have a little thing, you put it up and you follow your phone. And if it's not for my phone, um, I'm no, I, I can't do it. Like, just don't, I, I'm, I'm the directionless person. If you put me in a car and say, find your way, I'm never going to show up. <laughs> never going to show up. In fact, I, I drive to Lansing uh, at least once a month, and I've been doing this for five years now, and it's only recently that I don't use my GPS because I'm not sure I'll make it if I don't. But what's that GPS do when you take a round, wrong turn? What's that, uh, that evil pagan voice that tells you you're wrong? What's she say? Recalculating, rerouting, rerouting, rerouting. She says that all the time to me. You've gone the wrong way. We need to go, we need to get back. And so wherever you are in your spiritual journey, in your spiritual life, let me say to you, prayer should be first and up front. And let me say to you that it's very possible that, that you've been praying in, in the wrong manner. And this isn't to say, oh man, well, forget it. Sign off, I'm done. It's to reroute us, Right? To reroute us back toward God. And we do that by, by recognizing that God wants to hear from us. We do that by recognizing that, that our prayers can be built upon selfishness or, or worldliness. But rather they have to be built on our desire to be near God. 
And that by coming near to God in humility, God loves us and wants to lift us up. And all of that I call good news. All of that I call good news. So let me give you one last thing out of James. It's probably something you you might have heard before. This is from James chapter 5. As the band comes up um, and gets ready for our last song. Uh, James says this. He says, Therefore confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. Because the prayer of the righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain. And then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. His point is to say, the prayer of the righteous person, the prayer that looks like this, is powerful. And when he tries to illustrate that kind of power, he goes back to this story that's way back here in your Bible, the story of Elijah, who prays that the earth would not, that the heavens would not rain. And God listened. And he was just like you. Which is not an encouragement to not pray for rain. But it is an encouragement to recognize that Elijah was just like us and God listened. God will listen to you as well. There is power in prayer. There is nearness to God in prayer. And we must be a people of prayer. Let's stand as we sing this last song.